Welcome to the Waffle Shop Podcast with me, Taylor James. This is the podcast that gets people waffling about their mental health, coping mechanisms, life's minor inconveniences, and the music that soundtracks it all. So join me as I open up shop and have a waffle. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com people today. This is Paige, the co-host of Giggly Squad, and I want to tell you about a company that I've been loving, Olive & June. Olive & June gives you Everything that you need for a salon-quality manicure in one box. And if you break it down, it really comes out to $2 a manicure, which is absolutely insane. It's also so easy to get salon-worthy nails at home with Olive in June. The difference between how your nails used to look when you did them yourself and now with the Manny system is a complete game changer. The best thing about Olive in June, too, is it's a quick dry. Dries in about one minute, lasts for five days, and full coverage in up to one to two coats. Visit oliveandjune.com slash perfectmanny20 for 20% off your first system. That's oliveandjune.com slash perfectmanny20 for 20% off your first system. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass!" So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. Welcome to the Waffle Shop podcast. Today I'm joined by someone who, quite frankly, I've been wanting to speak to or waffle with for a very, very long time. Um... I think we were one of the first people we connected with when the Waffle Shop started. It's the brilliant founder of Edge of the Bed and Prevention Pathways, Ryan Gadsby. Yeah, thanks for having me on. I've been Welcome looking to the Waffle Shop. Yeah, yeah, I've been watching for a while, so it's, it's good to find. Been a long time coming. Yeah, definitely. Long time. Yeah, yeah. So, yeah, it's exciting to come on. I haven't done a podcast like this for over a year, so it's good to come on. Oh, with, no pressure then. Yeah, fresh mindset <laughs> and everything like that. So, yeah, it's exciting to That's be here. That's good. No, it generally is a pleasure, especially like in person as well. Yeah. Um, it's kind of quite overwhelming to go from, which I've read, there's part of this that we'll kind of dive into with like with your own story, but putting yourself out there on any kind of level. So to go from like recording in my bedroom to now being sat in like a studio with people that genuinely inspire me to like, it's, it's weird. I yeah, don't think it will yeah. ever not be weird. Yeah, definitely. I, I remember I did the same thing. So I had my own podcast, the edge of bed podcast. And I went from in my bedroom on the Skype call, or whatever it was recording it there. It's then being in a studio with people, the switch is completely different, but it's a nice switch as well. Cause you really get to feel like you're connecting with that person. You're getting to know them. And, definitely. Yeah. So yeah, it's interesting, but <clears throat> We'll get there. We'll get yeah, there. Yeah. <laughs> so I usually start the podcast with something called the weekly waffle, which mm. is something has kind of like, it's pissed me off, <clears throat> to be frank. Um, and then once I've spoken about it to my guests, it's it makes me feel a little bit better. However, 
this episode is quite a new kind of topic for me and I've kind of watched from afar with how much strength that you've shown like sharing your story how you've kind of supported so many more people so I kind of want to bypass the weekly waffle if <laughs> yeah, that's yeah, okay that's, that's fine, I mean. um because I feel like it's quite negative <laughs> and I want this to kind of be like an inspiring conversation which I mean it will no doubt be anyway yeah I'm um, glad that you said that to be honest because you know when you are a survivor and you're sharing your story openly and I connect with a lot of other people that do the same thing as me, um, you, you'll you go on a podcast or you'll do an interview type thing and people treat you as a victim or they'll speak of it in such a, right, today we're talking about abuse or something yeah. like that. And it just brings the tone really low down at the start. And I think sometimes I need to be that little bit of like positive, positivity within it and hope within it. And that's what I try to bring even with the reels and the content I post. It's about the rising up and and you know, making something of your story rather than thinking about the initial depth of, I guess, your despair or whatever, you know? No, so. and I, to be fair, and I think it's one of the reasons why I kind of relate <laughs> to your content. Obviously, I haven't been through what you have been through. However, you're this kind of, like, ray of light in this kind of stuff. Like, from just a mental health point of view, there's so many podcasts out there that's, like, mental health. People go on, they'll share their stories, which is phenomenal, like, so much respect. But then it's almost like you sit in that pocket of kind of like the bad, whereas, you know, with the bad, there is also good. There is good days. There are funny moments. There's great moments. Yeah, of course. And it's that that I kind of really tap into when it comes to like your content and like parts of your story. Um, because we don't have to stay in that kind of pocket. Exactly. Sometimes I will share bits of my story, like little pockets of it, like you're saying. I think it is important to do that because people can relate to that. And it might make them comfortable with accepting their own story. And that is also an important part. But again, with the healing side, you are encouraging, I guess, moving forward. I don't like the term moving on, but moving forward is what I like to say. Because with an experience like mine, which I'll explain, I feel like we're gatekeeping information here. <laughs> but <laughs> I think like um, with a story like mine, it is kind of like it's going to be with you for, you for the rest of your life, something like an experience like that. But you need to keep pushing and keep going it can't be something that holds you back from living your life to the full extent that you can mate it's inspiring already genuinely like <laughs> i appreciate it it was worth the wait just for <laughs> just for the start yes <laughs> for anyone who isn't familiar with yourself or the page or what you stand for i'd quite like to talk about the story if that's okay yeah and obviously fine, feel yeah. free to share whatever you feel yeah, comfortable yeah. on it. I know you're an open book now. Yeah. Kind of thing. And and with this, to be fair, like I'm going to ask your advice with this because I don't know how to approach. Obviously, it's very new territory for me with this kind of conversation. Would you at this point kind of give like a trigger warning or do you know, like? Yeah. Because yeah. obviously it's a very, very sensitive topic. Yeah, of course. I think we should always give a trigger warning. Um, I mean, I do in if my, if my reels are particularly so like instagram reels or tiktoks or whatever if they're particularly in depth about experiences that i've had i will put a trigger warning in front of it um because again some people aren't as comfortable with their story like and to see something like that can trigger a mental health episode or something like that so yeah i always give a trigger warning you know topics such as sexual abuse physical abuse and emotional abuse will come up mm -hmm. um yeah that sort of thing Fair, I'm gonna leave that in there. Yeah, because I think <laughs> you right. explained that yeah. far better than what I could have. Yeah. Um. So massive respect for that. I mean, I don't even know where to begin. Like. Yeah. No. I mean, I can I can go from the start. So, 
I always start my story. I don't go right back and just like, I was born in DRI in Doncaster Royal. Yeah. You know, anything like that. Is that but, where um, you were born? That was yeah. where I was born, <laughs> yeah. Just in case anyone was interested. <laughs> so, uh, no, I don't go right back to that. Um, but what I would start is me and um, my mum and my sister all lived together in a council estate um, in a quite deprived area of Doncaster called Highfields. Um which we've recently moved back to, which has been thrilling. <laughs> um, so, yeah, we grew up there, and obviously my mum at the time didn't have a lot of money, and my dad had just uh, left, um, and we ended up homeless, and we lived at my nan's, and we started oh. to go to a local church. Um, I think my mum went, not for religious purposes, I don't think she's ever been particularly religious. I think she went for the community side and, yeah. like, just having people around she could talk to. But, um, yeah, I think she found that quite helpful at the time, but... At the church we met, um, who went on to become my stepdad, he was called Andrew. And I can say all this now um, for reasons I can explain later. But, uh, yeah, so we met him there, and then him and my mum got chatting. And my first memory of him is um, he offered me biscuits at the church. That's the only that's the first time I remember meeting him. And then... Um, How old were you? Like so at, at this time, I would have been... remember that kind of specific Yeah, moment? yeah, so I was probably just about to turn eight, seven, eight, wow, around that okay. age, yeah. And then their relationship progressed quite quickly. So um, they went on a first date like two weeks after that. Um, and he asked if the, if me and my sister could go with them to the first date, which I thought okay. when I reflect on that, I'm kind of like, you know, yeah. that's a bit of a red flag there for me personally. But my mom, I think she was a bit, I don't think she could think clearly at that time in her life. So uh, we all went on this first date to KFC. You know, nice. classy, classy day. <laughs> so we went to KFC. Um, and then, yeah, progressed really, really quickly after that. They were married within a year. Oh, wow. Yeah, and we okay. moved in within seven months. Obviously, we didn't have a house. We were living with my nan in my nan's back room uh, around the time. So, yeah, we uh, moved in. And uh, he, he quickly became the main authority figure in mine and my sister's life. It don't, I don't know how he did it, but he had a way of just establishing power over my mum right. really really early on so it's always like you were in his house like the dominant exactly like, that yeah, and he yeah. used that phrase quite a lot like you're in you're under my roof now type thing right. and he used that to his um yeah to his power i guess to to get that control over me and my sister and i think at the start it started off with him sort of like my mum would go to him and say so I'd go to my mum and say, oh, can I play out tonight and she'd go oh, i'll go and ask and he quickly we quickly called him dad yeah so she'd be like i'll go and ask your dad so, um, yeah, that's but how you were it... also at an age where if, like, like, your dad, like, biologically had kind of left, a figure has come in, it's, it's quite, a, I guess, like, a quick process. It is, yeah. And I, I think mean, I haven't been through it, but I imagine... Yeah, I, I would agree. It, it is a quick process. And especially for me, I always wanted a dad figure in my life. Yeah. And I saw my friends with their dads, and it was something where I was like, like I really want that. Um, so I quickly... Like, I was called the spoiled child, which reflecting back, back now is quite like a painful thing. So I was known as like the spoiled kid because of how close we seemed. Right. But overcasting that obviously was um, the sexual abuse. <laughs> First time it ever happened, he, I used to be really scared of water. It was like my biggest fear. I couldn't swim and I was terrified of water. So he um, said to my mom, oh, I'll, I'll go and help him in the shower. Um, so, because I used to scream the house down, it's like one of them stories that my family tell me all the time. Like, whenever you used to get a bath, you scream the house down, they could hear you down the street and all that. So, we were like, I'll help him in the shower. 
And then um, I obviously like was like excited for it because he was like my new dad type yeah. thing at the time. It was still very new. So I was like, oh yeah, yeah. And then that was the first time it happened. Uh, and then the sexual abuse uh, sort of continued from eight until, it's hard to remember, but I think it was around 12, 13. Around that time it started to like fade out. And I think what it came from was obviously his attraction is to children and mm. I wasn't a child anymore. You were a teenager. Yeah, exactly. So um, at that point it began to fade out and over time it was kind of like, it sounds hard, but it was kind of nice for a bit. There was nothing. And it was like, oh, it was a proper family, was getting along, was going on nice holidays, which is something we'd never experienced. We was yeah. going to like Spain and things that seemed quite normal to people. We was like, well, like really blown away by. Um, was this just directed towards you? Obviously, was your sister younger than you? Uh, my sister's older than me okay. by a year, but she's never experienced any sexual. Right. So it was literally just just me, yeah. Right. Um, and so yeah, for them few years, it was uh, well, I say probably a year, I would say a year and a bit. It was kind of calm and there wasn't anything that happened. Um, and then after that, he started to become more controlling over me and it was kind of little things. So I found out that he had a tracker in my phone and I had like no idea it was in there. And the way that I found out is, as a teenager, obviously you lie about where you're going when yeah. you're So I was like, oh, I'm just heading to this like closer park, but me and my friends went down to another park. Um, and then I was walking back up and he just knew where I was and he pulled up in his car and grabbed me by a scuff at neck and just dragged me into the car. And um, I was like, how did he know I was there? And so I looked into it more and then the phone that he'd bought me off eBay was this like dodgy brand. I can't remember the name of it. And from the like, I guess, mother phone, you could track the other mobile and mm -hmm. see everything that that phone's doing. So you could see so everything that I did on my phone. Yeah. Um, and then and later fair, on- With you being the age that you are, mm -hmm. Obviously, you're going to grow up and you're, you start getting more inquisitive. Obviously, the world yeah. is changing. Obviously, your body is changing. Everything is changing exactly. at those kind of ages. So naturally, there's going to be a lot more questions. Of course, yeah, yeah. And um, later on, we come to find out in the like police investigation that uh, I had a hidden camera in my bedroom in the corner. But uh, I, I knew um, in my teenage years that he was watching me through my webcam. He had a thing called Team Viewer which is where like other computers on your network, you can see what they're doing on their computer yeah. screen. And he would click on the camera feature and he would look through my webcam. I used to work for an IT company. Yeah. And we used to use that if you used to remote onto yeah. like our clients. Yeah, computers. so we'd use TeamViewer, click on my camera for my webcam and I'd see the light pop up. And I remember the first time it happened, I laid in bed and I thought I'd been hacked or something like that. And I was like, what the hell? So I remember crawling under and then like just switching my PC off um because i used to just leave it on and then uh one night i went to go and catch him and um i like saw that the webcam came on i jumped up out of bed ran downstairs to where he would sit in the living room and i could see it on, on his mobile phone he could see my desktop and my room yeah. on his phone so it, in this period of time like apologies if i'm asking too many questions No, honestly, like i said at the start you can ask me anything um yeah. Was there an element, like, because you see this type of thing, like, in TV shows and stuff like that to so, so many different degrees, like, from, like, a mental side of thing, like, it's almost, were you trying to convince yourself that it was happening, but that it wasn't happening? Like, it was that kind of, I don't I don't yeah. know how to kind of articulate that. Yeah, no, that. no, I know, I know what you're asking, yeah. It was kind of like, it felt surreal to me, and it was like, so, is this really happening? Is it in my head? Because he would manipulate and gaslight to make me think when I would, because I would accuse him of things in this period of time. 
uh, as I said, it, it predominantly started, like progressively, sorry, started to get controlling and more aggressive with this. Um, but in this period of time, I would confront him about things like, have you been watching me? And he'd be like, what are you talking about? How dare you accuse me of that right. type thing? And just going into his character a bit more, he was kind of like well-liked, like he was um, a big part of the community. He'd raise money for charity a lot. Right. He would. Uh, he was a reader at the church, which is like um, kind of the step it's down from the vicar. Quite narcissistic. Yeah, and, and he, kind and he kind of kinda used yeah. that as his um, wall to like hide what he was really about. And... Um, you know, in these conversations where I'd accuse me of things, he'd be like, I, I, I'm, a, I'm a man of the church. I'm a religious man. You really think I would do something yeah. like that? And beside this, I never mentioned the sexual abuse. In I never confronted that. That was something that was pushed back from my side as well as kind of his at that point. or uh, Until a point uh, late in my later teen age, age years, sorry, about 15 years old, I, I said to him, um, I know what you did to me when I was young was wrong, and I know, and I know that, that happened. Wow. Um, what spurred that moment? It was this increase in control. The increase in control and just like mental abuse was, um, yeah, it was like too much. So I just thought, you know, I'm just going to tell him what I think, and like it was kind of an attempt for me to regain power. I think, yeah. And I was kind of just like, I'm sick of like not being able to do what I want to do because along with you know, the, the mobile phone and the cameras, it was also like, I had to be in at like five o'clock when I was like 15. And it's like, it seems so little, but it's like, it was like so stupid. And we, our bedtime was like half nine. Yeah. It's like I'm 15, all my friends are like but the taking thing the is mess out You can kind of relate this to like the whole pandemic thing. We're not meant to be caged. Yeah. Where, you know, it's a very human thing to want to kind of explore, be out at certain times. Like all these stuff that like, normal things from a childhood were almost being taken away yeah. from you. No, exactly. And like, obviously I had a lot of friends at school and they were all going out and doing things and like asking me, oh, do you want to come to this party? Do you want to do this? And I was just like, I can't, I can't, I can't. And like, if I ever dared to do that, he just knew. He knew that I'd done it because of the phone and the videos. In the moment where I confronted him, that's the first time he ever became violent. Wow. Yeah, so... Uh, obviously said, I know what he did to me was wrong. And then I broke down crying and I, I remember I fell to it, like his knees and I was like, all I ever wanted you to be is my dad. Like I didn't want any of this. I wanted you to be the dad that, you know, other people had. And then I remember he punched me in, in the face for the first time then and he like knocked me back. And then he was like this whole spouting thing again with the, how dare you accuse me of that when I'm a man of the church and all this lot and like everything I've done for your family, you were homeless and all, all this sort of stuff. Uh, and then from that point on, it was kind of like the physical abuse would come at a time whenever I stuck up for myself about the sexual abuse. It was like a attempt to keep me quiet. I feel like my blood is boiling. Yeah. Like, I'm obviously, I'm so grateful that you're in a position now to kind of like be sharing this. Mm. Like, and I'm genuinely like, I was inspired in the first like two, three minutes, but now I'm just like, I've only met you for the first time today, but I'm so fucking proud of uh, like you, you doing what you're it. doing. It is phenomenal. I know it obviously can't be easy revisiting this, but like with the when the violence kind of like started, was there another turning point to be like, right, enough is enough now. Like I can't. Like, did you tell your friends? Like, did like the family members? So, 
he managed to keep all of this like under wraps. No one else in the family ever knew about the sexual abuse, the emotional abuse or physical abuse. It was very under wraps. And I, as much as him, didn't want anyone to find out about the sexual abuse because I was so ashamed. And if anything, I helped him keep the secret for a long time. For me, between mine and his relationship, it was very, it's a hard one to like explain to someone who hasn't been through it, like into familiar abuse is what I'd describe it as like abuse within the family or home because you still love them, that person as your dad, despite what's happened. I mean, from like seven, eight years old, it brought me up, it taught me things, taught me to swim, taught me to, you know, do all these different things, took me on these holidays, and you still have these memories, and it's kind of as though, and I know that uh, a lot of other survivors describe it as this way, you sort of live in this split life, like you, you kind of subcategorize the abuse with day-to-day experiences within the family. That's how it worked in my head, a sort of dissociation type thing. And it's it was the only way I could survive with living with him and also all that happening. And so, like, I always felt a guilt, even when the physical abuse was happening, about ever confronting him properly or ever doing something about it because I didn't want him to get into trouble or him to face any repercussions or to lose him which sounds so strange, like I said, for you guys, for anyone who hasn't experienced it, but it is still true. You still have that bond with the person. And that is the hardest barrier that I had to get over. I felt yeah. was kind of like dropping that and saying, like realizing that, you know, he, he never loved me. He never did those things for good reasons. It was all to hide that secret. It's easy from the outside looking in to have that opinion, yeah. but you also, you can't help how you feel. Yeah, they're your emotions to feel. Mm. So if you do have a little bit of happiness in those kind of moments, I don't think regardless of what happened, I don't think anyone could tell you that's the wrong thing to feel. No, exactly. That. In that moment, that's what you were feeling. I mean, I posted a reel, um, I think about a week ago now, and I told the story from the perspective of my dad. Well, we're going to come on to it, but my dad committed suicide. That's the first thing I put. Uh, and then I went on to tell the story and halfway through I said, but he also sexually or physically abused me. Mm. And I think that was a good way to put it across to people to get them to feel the emotion of like, because at the start, all the viewers on the video were like, oh, really like feeling the grief for me, kind of like, and, and relating to me in that way. Then halfway through, they're like, whoa, mm -hmm. and kind of like shock, the shock factor of it. But that's so true for many survivors that I speak to that like you do have that grief period along with, dealing with the emotions of what actually happened and the abuse and things like that. So it's a really complex thing to navigate, even still for myself now, which I would say I'm in a good place in terms of my own like healing. It's still a hard, hard place to, to navigate for everyone, for all survivors. You've got such a phenomenal head on your shoulders. <laughs> Thank you. I do not think there's a lot of people who could sit in your position and kind of articulate the way that you are right yeah, now. I appreciate like I'm genuinely that, yeah. like in a little bit of awe. <laughs> The way that I got out of the abuse, I would say, I was 16, um, so that was 2017, I believe. Um, and I was extremely, with like the complex emotions I was describing, I felt very stuck. And I was like, how do I get out of this? Like, it just felt like there was no way. Every single door that I'd thought about in my head, there was no way. So um, I'd like planned to take my own life. And I remember the night that, the day before I was going to take my own life, it was such a strange like evening. And I began to write like suicide letters for my mom and my sister and my nan. 
Um, and so I started writing them all. Uh, and then I hid them in the top drawer of my desk. And then the day after when it came, I was supposed to be going to work. So I went into the bathroom for a shower uh, and I was going to um, like kill myself in the shower, basically, not to go into it. But um, but then at the last minute, sort of something happened and uh, kind of like something switched in my head, like, no, I need to like fight. I need to fight for this. Like, some, I need to like take control of this and, and get back and not... The thing for me is I wanted to regain that power like I did the years before, but in a way that would actually fix things in a way. Um, and it, like I said, the main thing pushing back on me was the guilt and the feeling of like shame about the sexual abuse, but also about hurting him and getting him in a position that would like cause him pain despite everything. So I decided to um, yeah go to the police. So. Before we dive into the whole police thing, I want to kind of ask you a question about what you've just said is to say it out loud is an incredibly powerful thing to do. How do you feel now kind of telling that part of your, because it's, it's a massive turning point to be at that almost like that rock bottom and just having that kind of, it's, I guess that fire that's yeah. lit in that kind of like moment. How do you feel now telling that story compared to where you were? Yeah, it's it's one of the moments that like I remember so like clearly in my mind because it was like the big turning point. Like I, I might not be here now if it wasn't for my mindset that day. And it was so strange because I'd planned it and thought about it for so long. And then in that split second, it's like something just switched in my head and it was like it's kind of saving. And like I was looking at myself in the mirror and I was kind of like, I can't let it beat me. I just can't let it, I can't let him do that as well. Um so yeah, when I reflect on it, it's one of them things where I'm grateful for my younger self for like pushing through that and getting to that point. So yeah, it's it's something that I um, I always remember and think about. Even tough times now, I reflect back to that moment and I'm like, you know what? No, Ryan, we're not giving into it. We're not give, letting him win. I'm going to push through this, even if it's a hard patch, which of course everyone has it. And even especially with our stories, everyone has those moments where it's a hard patch. And now I'm just like, Think back to that moment. We got through that. Let's just push through. Or, it, or it's for nothing, isn't it? I did that for nothing, so. Talk to me about, like, the next step then. Obviously, you kind of, you're in a position now where you're like, right, I need to do something. Like, I've got that power. You went to the police. Did you go alone? Or how, how did that scenario look? So I navigated it with a friend, sort of how I was going to do it. Um, but the day that I was supposed to be, I was supposed to be going to work, so... Conveniently, uh, the McDonald's I worked at was next door to a police station. So I just told him I was going to work and he dropped me off at work. <clears throat> the last thing I ever said to him was, I'm not going to keep your secret anymore. That was the last thing I ever said to him. And then he tried to grab my arm and tried to pull me back in the car, but I just pushed out, shut door, and then I could just see him like going like this back to the car as I walked away. Uh, and then I went into the McDonald's and hid in the toilet and just cried in there, like just bawled my eyes out on the floor still contemplating what I was going to do. Um, and then I walked around to the police station and, um, yeah, I went in and initially they told me I might have to come back tomorrow, which I was like, if like if I was to go home that night, I'm pretty convinced that I would have been like murdered. Like, I would have been killed. It's just some of the things that I did in those years of physical violence, um, like the scariest moment, he knocked me out completely in the office again uh, and I woke up and he was holding a knife just here. And he said, I could, I could fucking kill you like this right now and that'd be it. And like, knowing what he was capable of and what he, like, moments like that that I can remember, 
I said to this police officer, like, if I go home, I am literally going to get murdered. I need to speak to you today. And he was like, all right then. And it was like, so poorly dealt with. But anyway, these two lovely officers came and came and spoke to me. And then they took me to what's called the Mary Woolwich Centre, which is like a specialist like facility for that type of thing in Doncaster. And then I did a four hour interview telling basically my whole life story um, in extreme detail. Uh, and then, yeah, and then the investigation started. He was arrested that night. And I remember the moment the police officer said to me, he said, uh, oh, we're going to arrest him now. And it was like such a like feeling of like, oh, it's actually done, like it's actually over. And yeah, it was a, stra a strange, a strange time. Yeah. How in that in that moment, like, was it like a relief? Was it like a because obviously you've you've kind of touched upon a word that is, you know, I find quite fascinating, especially to, for someone who's been through what you've been through. Is like the guilt, like how what were the emotions that you were feeling once they said we're going to arrest him? The guilt side is kind of um, goes back to the memories of when you are a child and that like father relationship that I had with him. Yeah. So I think the guilt with that is kind of like you feel like it's your fault that it's happening to them, someone that you think that you love, someone that you think's like your family. So I think the guilt side was predominantly that. And I remember when I was crying, I was like saying sorry to him, to myself, but to him. And like obviously understanding now as I've gone through my healing journey, like I don't, I still get days where it's kind of like, I reflect back on the memories as a child and it's kind of them complex emotions, but I don't feel guilt to a way that about him i understand now that what he was doing was completely wrong but you've got to think like that was my life like i had no other influence of what was normal or what so it's been kind of like a journey from 16 when i got out to now kind of like seeing how you meant to how relationships are meant to be or healthy how healthy relationships are meant to be so yeah that's the only way i can describe it here's a cool fact a crocodile can't stick out its tongue. Another cool fact, you can get short-term health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states. United Healthcare short-term insurance plans are designed for people who are between jobs, coming off their parents' plan, or turning a side hustle into a full-time gig. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage with access to a nationwide network of doctors and hospitals. Get more cool facts about United Healthcare short-term plans at uh1.com. Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here. And it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt free. Hello, Fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello, Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at HelloFresh.com. So what happened after? Sorry, I feel like I'm like no, honestly, <laughs> being, keep, no, keep asking. And then what happened? <laughs> yeah. um, but no, it's, it's generally like the the way you're carrying yourself, like, and generally is mind blowing. Um, like, I in it. in a good way, obviously. Yeah, yeah. Um, so they arrested him. Like, we obviously you were kept separate. Yeah, from yeah. He was him. told that we couldn't contact. He couldn't contact like me, my mum, or my sister, or anyone in the family. So after that. I sort of went into a bit of like a depressive sort of spiral, like I'd describe it as. So I lived in my uncle's back room and then we managed to get a little Terry's house with my mum and my sister. And it was the first time that I'd lived with them, like with them since everything, like since being together as a family. That really hit me that, and I, like subconsciously, I didn't realise at the time, but when I do reflect back, like it really hit me. 
so I started to like I, I quit college, I quit my job, and I just sat in all day. Uh, and there's some photos on my Instagram of me at this time. Uh, and I began to just starve myself, so I didn't eat at all. I ended up in the hospital for it. Um, like, my body was eating at its own fast, uh, fat store, so I had, like, ketones, like, in my blood and things like that. Um, so, yeah, it was, like, a really, really, like, hard time. Um, and then, obviously, with the police coming around all the time, it felt as though, like, people were turning on me in the community. So the church that we went to is a very, very... I'm not going to give the name because I can't, but... It's a very strange place. Like, there's multiple convicted paedophiles that go to the church. What? And are allowed in the church. And it, like, it still to this day angers me. And it's so funny because we were a men member of the church and they knew what he did. They stayed in contact with him but didn't offer any support to me, my mum or my sister at the time, even though we never went back. It was still, like, we're But if you look there. back at the reasons why your mum and, like, you as a family went there in the first place was the sense of community it was that sense of like being a part of something bigger yeah so to now have again a huge part of life as you knew it almost kind of again taken away yeah like regardless of the age i think that is going to hit you like a ton of bricks exactly yeah and so there's no like support offered from the church um the only sort of the way i got out of that situation where i was stuck in the house is I started to meet with um, someone who used to go to that church called Mike, and he was like the youth leader, and he was my youth worker back when the abuse was happening. Obviously, I had no idea it was happening, but he was someone that was a bit of like a beacon of light to me at the time. Uh, he used to have a group called Tower Gang. We'd all go there, and it was just like a space where I could forget about everything and just have fun um, there. I started meeting up with him, and I told him what had happened. And then, like, since then, he just supported me all the way through. He helped me apply to college again, Um yeah, it just helped me, like, turn everything around. Uh, and you know, now... Be, you've mentioned, like, Survivor throughout this. I don't think that quite describes you enough. <laughs> I feel like there needs to be a word. <laughs> That's <laughs> like... Yeah. Like, because I think, especially, again, like, going through what you did and then to now be in a position to share it so openly and honestly and in the way that you do is genuinely inspiring. But to now, is it is it Mike that you've now founded this new program with yeah, that yeah. you're now kind of helping others yeah. in that situation? So the first step I took with this sort of um, mission, I guess, of wanting to work with survivors and, I guess, um, like improve the life of survivors um, was to do the page. So the first thing I ever did is I uh, uploaded just a podcast to the Instagram page, the Edge of the Bed. And I called it that at the time because... Um, it was uh, filmed on the edge of my bed. So I just filmed it there and um, I just told my whole story out and then I posted it. And like at the for like ages, it was just like 20 followers and people like in the family would share it for me and things like that, which is nice. Uh, and then slowly it just began to grow. And then I said to my car, it'd be great if we could um, like provide some training to like youth workers like Mike who then could help we could use our knowledge of Mike, the the youth worker who, I guess, missed the signs, and also bring my perspective of a, as a survivor into the training. So we began to um, sort of work on that, and that's the Be Abuse Aware course. So we're working that in um, Doncaster, Rotherham and Sheffield, hoping to launch fully uh, this winter. But we've done our sort of trial sessions, and we've got feedback. We've got feedback from the National Safeguarding Team for the whole of Church of England, and they, like, re they really liked it. They thought it was really good took their like improvements on board and made it even better so yeah we're looking to launch it get it all around all the different youth groups in um 
yeah, in Doncaster, Rotherham and Sheffield and then hopefully even further. Yeah, so it's exciting stuff. And then we've How got... How does it feel now to be in this position? It's really good, yeah. I, I'm, I'm excited for it. And with the prevention pathways side, so I've been doing teacher training. So uh, in the end of, at the end of May, I'll be a qualified teacher. So I've done that because I want to provide a side to the organisational charity or whatever it turns out to be, um, where we go out and provide educational support to children who have experienced trauma. Because I've noticed a bit of a gap throughout my teacher training, also my time in school on my undergrad degree, um, where children who have been through trauma or you know adverse child experiences, they're offered pastoral support, but they're not pushed educationally or, or pushed in life to oh, achieve okay. higher. Yeah. So that's the sort of gap I want to fill. I want to come into schools and give them a little like nice space where they can feel comfortable and be pushed and supported educationally as well as pastorally. So um, that's the aim with that. So, wow. Yeah, exciting stuff happening. Very exciting yeah. stuff, um, mate. So you're now you're now back home, kind of like you've been through a bit of a turmoil now from like a mental health side of things, like you're starving yourself, you're in hospital. Like what was going on at that time? Yeah, so I think I was just unhealthily sort of trying to navigate the emotions that were going on. And um, you know, as the investigation went on. I kept having visits from the police and I had a, a victim liaison officer and I did counselling. I didn't really find it that helpful. I felt that I'd come to counselling and she'd expect me to say something and we'd kind of be sat there and I'd be like, um, just telling her about my day. I'd be like, oh, so I went to college and I did this and uh, this happened and like I had it for a long time. I think I had it for nearly a year, counselling. And every time I felt like I had to bring something for her, like I say, like it was such a strange feeling. So I ended up just not doing it anymore started exercising and things like that and trying to get my head in a better space. Um, but yeah, the investigation continued and I, like I heard stories from people of what he was doing and he was sort of like becoming like more of, he was an alcoholic already, but he was becoming more of an alcoholic and uh, he went on holiday to Thailand. So as you can imagine, I wonder what he was doing yeah, there. Yeah. Um, which is, you know, just baffling that the police let him go to Thailand, which is a country notorious for middle-class white men to go and abuse children. Yeah. Um, so or even to leave the country at all, exactly, considering yeah. what he's been investigated for. <laughs> yeah, exactly. So um, it came towards a point where we knew we was going to court, which is a really hard process for anyone who's been for abuse, as they'll know. Like the CPS has to feel like they can charge him, and the and the police side have to feel like they can uh, sort of win the case. Uh, and so yeah, it got allowed to court, and he would have received a letter that had all the charges, and they charged him for like quite extreme charges of trying to get him down for quite a long time. Um, and then I remember the week after they told me that they'd sent the letter out, I got I was in Meadowhall, actually, uh, and I got a phone call from the police officer, and she was like, uh, oh, I need to speak with you urgently. And I was like, oh, okay, I'll come home. So I drove home, and then uh, I sat in the living room waiting, and then I saw him pull up, and it was like, I basically had two police officers because one of them left halfway through, but Adam, he was the first one I ever spoke to about my story back on that day when I went to the police wow. station and did that four-hour interview. And he came with the new police officer who was called Joe. So I thought, mm, that's a bit strange. Like something big must have happened here. And they came in, they sat down, and they was like, oh, um, we have some like kind of hard news for you. Um, Andrew, um, obviously his stepdad, he's committed suicide. And I was just like, what? And it just felt so, like, it was such a strange moment. It felt like a dream, like, kind of moment. Well, as it would, if anyone had just been told that news, it's going to completely devastate you. Yeah. But considering 
what the relationship was and kind of how it almost ended. Mm. Like, and it was such a pressure to know how to to show people how I respond. Like, I felt like a pressure to be like, "Oh, good, yeah. oh, like, good, glad he's gone." But inside, Do people now was, expect you to be like that. I think people who know who who follow the page and are survivors they understand but people who don't know me and aren't survivors on the page i get a lot of like negative comments about yeah. that and quite like some of them are like oh, are you so are you glad he killed himself and then other ones are like how can you be sad that he killed himself um but within my family it's kind of i did feel a bit of a pressure to seem not bothered by it yeah. and because like certain members of the family were like oh i'm so glad that he's gone he can't hurt anyone else you've got to think it's a good thing that he like can't hurt anyone else that's what people would say to me and i'll be like yeah yeah but then also like th there's them emotions that i described earlier like he was my dad yeah for those years well, there's still an element of loss there. yeah there's and, still and like grieving a there, there was definitely and i think still now it's still a bit of a process where it's like and then you feel guilty for grieving. Like even now, like if I do have moments where I think back to my childhood, it's like I have to block myself from thinking about childhood memories, even ones that were good and they were enjoyable and happy. And it's like I have to block that out of my mind because I feel guilty for it being a happy memory despite what had happened. Yeah. And then the grief side of it comes in. I feel guilty for grieving because of what he did. So it's such a complex like thing to navigate in my own head but it's something that I feel I'm processing and that's what's important. I went through a phase of blocking everything out and just sort of lying to myself that it didn't bother me and that I wasn't grieving for him. And then now it's sort of like the last two years, I would say a year, I'm sort of slowly accepting and feeling comfortable with the fact that all of those things happened. I am, I did grieve for him and I still am grieving for him, but I'm also grieving for the child and the things that had happened and all of those things. So I, th I always say like the most important part of healing from trauma, childhood trauma specifically, is acceptance because it's so easy to throw it away. And it's all subconscious. You don't realize you're doing it, but it's so easy to throw away those emotions and just ignore them and, and live past it. So I think, yeah, just accepting it over these last few years, it's been painful, but it's something I can feel that is good for me. Yeah. How do you, because we, we talk a lot on the show about like the mental health side of things and quite a lot of my coping mechanisms has come from having conversations like this to, because the normal stuff wasn't working for me. Like, mm. I mean, the NHS is obviously phenomenal at what they do, but yeah. their advice and stuff when it came to our mental health, it didn't work. It wasn't until I was having conversations that I was like, oh yeah, well, I'll give that a go. Yeah. When these kind of emotions of like the grief or like the mental health side of things kind of creeps in, how do you navigate that? Do you have any coping mechanisms that you lean towards on those days? For me, that's helped the most, I think is like, it sounds so like cliche, but exercise has been massive yeah. for me. In my case, being a male who's been through sexual abuse as well, um, I haven't been for a long time, but jujitsu, I found was such a like healing part of mine. It's a martial art, basically a grappling martial art. Um, uh, okay. And like, it got me comfortable with contact with men and also made me feel more confident within myself. And also any exercise just makes you feel good anyway. Yeah. So exercise has been like the biggest coping mechanism for myself. The page is also probably the second biggest, like just talking to other survivors, connecting with them, just getting my voice out there and, and kind of knowing that it's 
for good. It feels as though, I think when you've had an experience like this, it's hard for it not to feel like such a waste of your childhood and things like that. But at least I know by doing this work, something positive is coming out of it. And that's what I kind of value and keeps me going as well. I think it's incredible. And to be fair, the, the page, um, obviously I will link everything into this. Like it's, it's inspiring. Oh, thank like, you. And I, I like what I like about it. Like so much, it kind of really sets it, kind of sets it apart from quite a lot of pages out there. It's like, you're not trying to be anything. You're not, you're sharing like these really raw kind of moments in your life. But the way that you do it and like you almost understand why it happened mm. and you're sharing that kind of side of it. Like it's, it's phenomenal. Yeah, right? Like it really that. is. I appreciate it. And from that side of things, obviously the, one of the questions that I wrote down to kind of ask you was around the, the label of survivor. Mm. Like there's a lot of kind of almost stigma, would you say? with this kind of like the victim the survivor kind of like label yeah. how do you feel about it or you like you're like you're a proud like yeah i did survive it yeah i think it is i'm on that side i think survivor is the term that i prefer i think victim like it's quite strange because whenever i share my story to you know some po podcasts i've been on or even to people like new friends that i meet or whatever and i share my story to them they almost think that they need to be this like carer and and uh like supporting figure and you're the victim and you need some help of some sort and like if you if any professional setting if your manager finds out about this thing which obviously ha has happened where my manager's seen my page and they kind of like do you need any support from us do you need any help from us and it's like i think i'm all right you know i think i'll be all right um i think we need to switch the culture around survivors where it's kind of like stop talking to them like they're a victim and they need help like they've probably been through more than you. So I think they're going to be fine. When that support is needed, let the professionals do with it. Like signpost them to professionals if that's something you feel you need to do, if you can see that they're struggling. But if they're coming to you with a conversation and saying, listen, this happened to me, then don't be like, oh, do you need it? Like, like I say, yeah. it's just that Champion kind of thing. It. Champion yeah, exactly. like the bravery that they're sharing with you. And like you said, signpost them yeah. to where they need to be. And I think like one of the most comments I get, and I appreciate all the comments on my post, it obviously helps get the word out and reach more survivors. But the biggest one I get is like, I'm so sorry this happened. And, and like, kind of like they focus on the devastation part of the story. Mm -hmm. Like, um, like kind of like, oh, this ruined your life. How dare he? And it's kind of, I want to push the message that I don't like, I appreciate the comments, but I don't want that reaction. Yeah. I want people to say, oh, look, and he's still all right. Look, he's still making it. And I want survivors that see the post to think that, like, I'm not sharing it because I want you to feel sorry for me or to, um, like, send a message to me or give me some help because I, I don't need that. I, I can I can access that if I need. But what I want you to do, like I say, is just look at it and say, oh, look, he's, he's he keeps going. Maybe with my problems, if they're not a survivor, I can see that. Well, I can keep going and I can keep pushing. So that's the kind of swap I'm trying to, like, integrate into the, the page and to be honest well. mate i think that perfectly answered the question like yeah you, you are that's the definition yeah yeah of a survivor and it's it's that kind of thing and i say it a lot on the show and obviously this is a very different angle to like the normal conversation that i have on here however for anyone who is listening to this like obviously if you can relate to everything that kind of like ryan is kind of like sp speaking about like obviously reach out there is a lot Definitely. of support out there 
but the most important thing is to not give up. Yeah. Like, you know, from a mental health side of things, like the conversations like this, I've kind of realized that the shit will happen mm. regardless of who you are, where you are in the world. Yeah. But the important bit is that you keep going. Yeah. Like it doesn't have to, to kind of define you and it's like, it does get better. Yeah, definitely. And I think I'm, I try to be as open as I can about the current issues that I face within my healing. Like, although, you know, I don't want to come across as the victim and kind of like I'm struggling. We are still struggling, but we can do it and we can push through. And, you know, I speak a lot about sort of the mental health side that I struggle with. So I, I struggle with PTSD, um, depression and um, dissociative um, depersonalization, derealization disorder, which a lot of people don't know what that is. So it's kind of the feeling like physical feeling that you're out of body and it's like you're watching wow. over yourself like you're kind of like not in control of yourself but you are it's, it sounds really like confusing, no but it's uh, but it's something that a lot of people struggle with especially survivors and where it comes from like psychologically is that when you are abused as a child your brain creates ways to protect itself so they don't know for sure what causes it but this is sort of theories around why people experience depersonalization it's kind of your body comes up with a way to make you feel like it's not happening to you. So that's the sort of um, maybe the origin of why I experience it. Um, so it can kind of, it links with your emotions as well as your like conscious experience. So sometimes I can be sat somewhere and it's like, it'd be like something clicks and then it's like, whoa, I feel like I'm in a dream and I feel like well out of it. And like, I can see my hands moving. It's like, I'm not doing it. And then also emotionally within relationships, it can make me, like not feel close to people as like, I guess a, a normal person should um, because the emotions are dissociated. And I think that's another way of the brain protecting itself yeah. from like, or don't, because with the complex relationships that I've experienced, I think my brain kind of thinks that relationships can be quite damaging to me. So try to protect me from them. Um, so it's yeah. That's like, just it's a, like a habit though, isn't it? Yeah. So it's obviously you only kind of know what you know. So, yeah, it, it makes sense in that respect. Yeah, yeah. When that kind of creeps in, how do you kind of almost bring yourself back? Is it like a, a, how, is it like a day thing, like week? How, yeah. how, what does that look like? So sometimes I can have it for months, like actual wow. months of okay. where I feel like I'm in a dream and I feel emotionally detached. And um, in those moments, it's kind of like, I'm, I think in my head, like, I know eventually I'll feel all right. But in the moments where it's like, it can get quite bad in like just a split moment and then pass. Uh, in those moments, I just kind of like take a minute to be like, it's not going to harm me. The feeling's not going to harm me. Just try and focus. Uh, and that's kind of thing. I, I think at first, when I first got it, it was like, what is wrong with me? Like, I must yeah. have something wrong with my brain. Um, but obviously, as I've went and seen doctors and things, it's kind of like, no, this is just your body's response to the trauma. So I think this is probably one up there with one of the most like powerful insightful conversations I've at genuinely ever had on this podcast. Oh, I'm glad to hear, yeah, yeah. There's three final questions that I ask each and every one of my guests, and I wasn't going to ask them today, but the fact that you've drove here from a 1935 <laughs> gig, yes. like I feel like I'm going to have to ask these questions yeah. now. So music for me is one of my biggest coping mechanisms, yeah. like the good, the bad, the ugly, that music has always been there to soundtrack it or... It just to get me through it. Yeah. If there's a song playing, what is it to get you on the dance floor? To get me on the dance floor. Um probably it's gonna be a nineteen seventy five song. 
uh, Happiness 1975. Okay. Okay. That's such a good song. That's such a good song. <laughs> There's a nice little nod to the corner there. Yeah, <laughs> it's yeah, like, yeah. You know, yeah. It's, it's, a, it's a mean song. And he um, played it and I was like, proper turn up for that. But this <laughs> is what I love about live music. It takes you like completely away or like it yeah. reminds you of those kind of moments and you just kind of, you just like, I don't know, in just this real nice state of almost like um, euphoria. Yeah. With it is, it. Yeah. The power music has is just mental and it's something that i've found like healing definitely i love that yeah okay this is going to be a deep one now um i'm a big believer in people having like a soundtrack to their life mm -hmm. whether it's a song an album or even an artist is there a song album artist that has soundtracked your journey so far it sounds strange it's not the lyrics or anything like that it's just the song so tracy chapman fast car that song has been like so I've got a little side story to this, and this like always gets me when I speak about this. But um, so before we met, before I met Andrew, um, when my dad left, he left for another woman. She was called Jackie, okay. and then after those split up, Jackie and my mum became best friends. <laughs> so an odd <laughs> friendship. <laughs> wow. But um, she like became our auntie Jackie, which is like a common thing in Yorkshire where like your mum's best mate becomes <laughs> your auntie. We all have a cousin. Yeah, that, like, isn't our cousin. Auntie, yeah, 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 like auntie Jackie. Um, and so like she did everything for us. Like she basically became our dad. Rather than staying at our dad's, we could stay at Jackie's house on a weekend. And like she got us Christmas presents. And I remember once I wanted, you remember when people were doing them patterned haircuts with the yeah. little, <laughs> I, I really wanted that in did school. Did you have one in the eyebrow? I didn't, I never no, had that. No, nor me. <laughs> <laughs> and so I was like, like really wanted that. And my mum could never afford it. My mum used to cut my hair. She used to give me like just bald. She used to just go bald. Um, I mean, I'll take that. I used to have a bowl. A bowl? I used to have a bowl put on my head and cut around it. That's brutal. Yeah. Yeah. So, <laughs> take what you can get. <laughs> yeah, it's true that. Um, so she took me to a barber and I got the lines in my hair. So she like just did things like that. It was really nice to us. Um, but she also like helped me with my fear of water. So obviously this was before Andrew. She would teach me that in the bath to talk to my imaginary friend called Jack in the ceiling. Um, and so I could tell him all my problems and my worries and things like that. So then jumping forward to when the abuse would happen as a distraction from the sexual abuse, I would go back to talking to Jack in the ceiling and I would talk to him about my problems throughout the day instead of focusing what was like actually happening. Yeah. Um, so like I always credit her for like saving me. I think that like, yeah, she'd like, I think she was looking down on me that whole time and sort of like helping me get through those moments. Uh, uh, and she likes, well, she passed um, uh, when I was, I think about 13. So um, yeah, but her favorite song was Fast Car by Chaser Chatelain. <laughs> so we used to dance um, in the kitchen and that with her to that song. And so I always what? listened to it. This might be quite timely, but there was a Grammy performance recently um, by Luke I know Combs. Say, and Luke Combs is one yeah. of my favorite singers. So yeah. when that happened, I was like, "Yeah, I, you showed me it," and I was yeah. like in tears. All like, <laughs> I've literally, I've asked that question so many. I've still got like <laughs> goosebumps. I've asked that question so many times, and that has been the most perfect response <laughs> to that question. Yeah. Like, thank you for sharing that. And that is such a good cover, Luke Combs with Tracy Chapman oh. live beautiful Hello. beautiful i can't stop watching it i just oh. go on tiktok to the clip and just listen to it is there a song that you would like to put in a box wrap a chain around it kick it to the bottom of the ocean never hear it again <laughs> that's a tough one i mean no beef like it could be for a number of reasons it could be just it's overplayed you hate it i think 
that happy song by Pharrell. Is it Pharrell Williams or whatever it is? That is an awful, awful song. That is so bad. I think you should say that. He's here to... Yeah, yeah, yeah. Here he is. <laughs> In the middle of commentary, yeah. Pharrell Williams. <laughs> that is a, just such a, like... I mean, his intention were great. Again, with positive vibes, but it's just... But yeah, the happiness turned to sickness yeah, quite, does, quite, does. quite yeah, quickly. Yeah. Um, <laughs> mate, genuinely, hand on heart, I respect you like so much. You genuinely probably one of the most inspiring people I've had on this podcast. I appreciate you saying that. I appreciate obviously you coming from London, like driving down to obviously be here. Um, and I can't I can't wait to see what's next. I will link everything in to obviously so if you want to find out more about the program, what's it called again? So it's Prevention Pathways um, and the Be Abuse Aware course is the training course, a part of Prevention Pathways. Um, yeah. Amazing. And yeah, like I said, I'll link everything in, but thank you so much for joining me for a waffle. Oh, thank you. Thank you for having me. It's been a pleasure. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash trip for free shipping and 365-day returns. Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well... HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan-crusted chicken or garlic-butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. How would you like to look five years younger? In a clinical study, People that had volume added with Juvederm Voluma XC in the cheeks perceived themselves as looking five years younger at six months after treatment. Look younger, feel like you. Add volume for lift and contour in the cheeks with Juvederm Voluma XC. Reverse signs of aging by adding volume to smooth laugh lines with Juvederm Volure XC. For important safety information and to find a licensed specialist, visit Juvederm.com. That's J-U-V-E-D-E-R-M.com. Not for people with severe allergic reactions, allergies to lidocaine, or the proteins used in Juvederm. Common side effects include injection site redness, swelling, pain, tenderness, firmness, lumps, bumps, bruising, discoloration, or itching. There's a risk of unintentional injection into a blood vessel, which can cause vision abnormalities, blindness, stroke, temporary scabs, or scarring. Talk to a licensed specialist to find out if it's right for you. You've been listening to the Waffle Shop Podcast with me, Taylor James. Don't forget to hit that subscribe button and even leave a review. It means the world to me. See you soon.